The Biblical Foundations Bible Study, online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. Taught by Chris Martin, this course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. got three daunting goals for today. Number one, I want to change the way you think about yourself. That's always daunting. Number two, I'm going to change the way, I'm going to try to change the way you think about other people. That's equally daunting. And number three, I'm going to do it by trying to teach you Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 in less than an hour, and that's really daunting. Most pastors would say I'm crazy because they would teach that in at least six lessons, if not more. And even if you could combine them, most of them would say Romans 7 and 8 are two of the most important chapters in Scripture. You don't want to teach them together, but I'm going to in an attempt to try to explain to you how all of this weaves together and also in part because our goal is not to provide an encyclopedia of everything that Paul taught, but simply let you realize the mind of Paul and the character of Paul, which we see vividly in chapter 7, but that we see applied in our other verses. So as I finish, you'll see why I combined them. It's daunting, and we got to cover a lot of text, but I've done it in a way on your outline that I think is going to make it a little bit simpler. Uh, by way of quick introduction, to get us to this point, Paul started with the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel that we saw, his thesis in chapter 1, is it's the power of God to salvation, and it's the righteousness of God, and that's important because what follows in the next seven chapters is a contrast to the righteousness of man versus the righteousness of God. The righteousness of man is what we do to make ourselves more right. So before we got to his deep dive on what it means to be righteous, he tackles the big questions of life. Questions like, what about all the other religions in the world? What about people that are inherently good, or they at least seem to be good? What about the pygmies in the Amazon jungle or Africa that don't know, that never heard about Jesus Christ, much less hear about God? We tackled all of those in that lesson, and then we took it the next step last week, and we looked at the question of understanding salvation, and we did this by comparing what the Bible has said since the book of Genesis about righteousness and salvation. And it culminated in chapter 4 by saying that because of Abraham's faith, not his actions, not his works, Abraham's faith, he was declared righteous. So at that point, Paul basically declared that what the world considered to be religion is bankrupt. Doing religion is bankrupt in the mind of Paul. And you're going to see as he goes forward how he deals with the implication of that thought. Because the implication of him saying that we live by faith that is a gift of God's grace, you immediately start to say, well, wait a minute. There's a whole bunch of implications in that in terms of what I do. Do I go to church? If I go to church, why? Do I tithe? If I tithe, why? If I do this or I do that, why am I doing all that? So Paul is going to tackle in 5, 6, 7, and 8 how to live this confusing life that's not based on religion. It's not based on me doing stuff so that God slaps me a high five when I get to heaven and says, way to go, good and faithful servant. If I'm living a life of grace and faith, what do I do? And on your outline, I started that process by looking at chapter 5, starting in the middle of chapter 5 with this concept of dealing with guilt. Now, this may sound strange, but once you dig into Paul, it becomes a little bit more clear because if you realize from your study of Scripture where guilt comes from and where religion comes from, they are synonymous. Because in Genesis chapter 2, we learn that after the fall, we get the first act of religion. Adam and Eve made clothes to cover themselves, or made, uh, made uh, animal skins to cover themselves and used uh, uh, fig leaves to cover themselves because of their attempt to approach God. It was the first act of religion. So the first time we had a sacrifice for clothing, the first time we had uh, the pre-sacrifice use of fig leaves to try to get clothing, it's a religious act. And so Paul deals with this concept of if we're jettisoning what the world views as religion, 
we still got this problem going back to Genesis 2 of guilt because if you've got sin, you got uh, people that are transgressing what God said about how you live life, you're going to have guilt. So he puts this into perspective. And he starts by saying in the middle of chapter 5 and verse 12, therefore, in other words, everything I just taught you about salvation last week, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, in this way death spread to all men because all sinned. So our point here is that just as sin exists for every single person, guilt exists for every single person. So there's nothing you can do to free yourself from guilt as long as you've got a sin issue. It's kind of a barometer or a thumbometer to tell you what's going on, but the historical perspective is there's nothing unique to you or your sin about guilt. It's inherent in our DNA. So he starts this historical perspective that says, don't view it just isolated to yourself, view it totally. Now, he goes a little bit deeper on sin, and here, in the middle of chapter 5, he goes a little bit deeper, and he says, in fact, sin was in the world before the law. So from Adam and Eve, we've got sin long before Moses, all those centuries later. He says in verse 18, so then, as though one tras through one tras trespass, there's condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act, there's life-giving justification for everyone. For just through one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, also through one man's obedience, many will be made, right, be made righteous. What he's saying here is that just as sin for all of us came out of Adam, that pollution that kind of went through all of humanity through our DNA, he said the exact converse is true. That if you've got guilt going back to one man's sin that's permeated through all of humanity's DNA, you can have an alleviation of guilt or a way to live life through one individual man because that has also changed part of what your spiritual DNA is. So at this point, most of you are going like, well, I kind of academically understand, but that's kind of a hard concept to wrap my brain around. Paul goes a little bit deeper. He says, you got to understand the reason why we want to do religion. The reason why we have this desire to do religion is because it makes us feel good, but in doing that, what it does is it actually motivates us to sin more. And he has a very simple sentence on this, Romans 5.20, the law came along to multiply the trespass. Mm -hmm. Now, when you hear that, you go, huh? That doesn't make any sense at all. Let me give you the greatest illustration I've ever heard of this that just makes all the sense in the world as soon as you see it. You recognize that hotel. It's in Galveston. It was the first hotel in the United States that was ever built over water. It goes back to the early 1960s, for those of you who've been around Houston and Galveston that long. When they first built a hotel, they put a sign on every balcony that said, no fishing off the balcony. <laughs> Because you're over the water, you're out there, you're looking down, there's water, you're like, hey, what a great place to drop my fishing line. Right now, if you're in Galveston and you've got a fishing pole with a lead weight on the end and the wind is blowing in Galveston, guess what those lead weights do? They shatter the windows. So as soon as they open the hotel, Everybody was fishing off the balcony, and all of the windows in the first floor restaurant were shattered on a weekly basis because everybody with their metal lures fishing off the side of the balcony. So the sign that said, no fishing off the balcony, told everybody, what a great idea. I'm going to fish off the balcony. And Paul is saying the law, the desire that says, don't sin is like a magnet that says don't sin. So you know what they did in Galveston? They took the signs down. And until Hurricane Ike, they tell me, the managers that are there, they never had a problem with broken windows due to metal fishing lures off the balcony because by and large no one would do it as opposed to having the sign when everybody was doing it. So Paul is saying that having the Ten Commandments, having the book of Leviticus, having the book of Deuteronomy just made everybody sin a whole bunch more. And that doesn't make any sense, but then you think about the flagship in Galveston, and you're like, okay, I kind of understand it. And so Paul's point here is, 
religion is not a cure for sin. In many respects, religion makes you sin more because it makes you feel like, hey, what a great idea. I'm going to do that because that sounds like a fun thing to do. Paul says there's a whole new paradigm. He says in verse 20 and 21, but where you've got that multiplicity of sin due to this law now, that now that you know what not to do, you want to go do it, where sin is multiplied, grace is multiplied even more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What he's saying here is that as sin increases in our culture, in our lives, it's a greater opportunity for God to demonstrate grace. So the way he deals with guilt is he's saying you've got to put it into perspective of the position you're in with Jesus Christ where you get more grace. If you sin more, you get more grace because you've got to have more grace to deal with the sin. Now, if anyone's thinking about that for more than just a nanosecond, the immediate reaction is, well, if I'm going to get more grace, let's just have a sin party and just sin all the time as much as we can because then I'm just covered in grace. Paul says, uh-uh, you cannot do that. That's not the way it works. The way you deal with sin, Paul says, starts by a totally different perspective. He starts this question. Chapter 6, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? That's what I just said 30 seconds ago. He says, absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Let me explain what that means. The way you deal with this concept of how do I deal with a whole bunch of grace and a whole bunch of sin starts with identification. His use of the term baptism here is used in a spiritual sense, not a physical sense. We are physically baptized. That's a different lesson for another day. But when he talks about all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus, as opposed to being baptized into the water, he's describing in a spiritual sense his identity. His use of the word baptism or baptizo means immersion, or it means to be submerged which means when he describes an immersion into Christ Jesus, it's being enveloped by Christ Jesus. He's saying the reason you can't have a philosophy that says, I'm going to get a whole bunch of grace by doing a whole bunch of sin, he says, uh-uh, you are enveloped in Christ Jesus who is without sin, so that can't be your mindset. You cannot say, I'm going to get a whole bunch of grace by sinning a whole bunch. That may be the way God works, but that's not the way we're going to approach it for dealing with sin because I'm enveloped by Christ. The way Christ taught this is explained in the book of John. He uses language of a vineyard and a grapevine. And he talks about abiding in me and abiding in you and being engrafted into one another. And he uses that then to segue into this concept of adoption. So he almost describes it like two plants are in are, 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 are kind of wed together in a physical sense. He describes abiding as being that kind of a unification. So it's identification that says, I am enveloped by who Christ is. My soul is enveloped by the essence of Christ. The next point he says is this causes us to walk our lives differently, to do life differently. He says in Romans chapter 6 verse 4, therefore we were buried with him by baptism, by the spiritual thing that made us like him, as he died, we died. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. Or if you've got a King James or an NIV, it says walk in the newness of life, which is the way I memorized this as a kid, and that's the way I've got it written on your outline. Walking in the newness of life, it's a new way of life. Verse 5. For if we've been joined in him in the likeness of his death, we will also certainly be in the likeness of his resurrection. Here's where the mind shift comes and how we think about ourselves versus ourselves with Christ. This phrase talks about walking in a new way of life, not like Christ before the crucifixion. But what does it say? the likeness of his death and the likeness of his resurrection. It's walking in a new way of life 
like Christ post-resurrection. Think about that for just a minute. Christ post-resurrection pre-ascension. Okay, so Easter Sunday morning, fast forward until the ascension into heaven. He's got those 30 days with the disciples. He is resurrected, so he's got his heavenly body, but he's here on earth. He's talking to the disciples. He's spending time with his friends. He's eating meals with them. He's teaching them. He's laughing with them. He's talking to them. He's dealing with uh, uh, Thomas's doubt. He's dealing with Peter's guilt, right? He's dealing with all those kind of things during that month after Easter Sunday morning prior to the ascension. And if you get that picture of Christ, you get the idea of what Paul's trying to say. He's saying the way you deal with life is with the image that because he's enveloped around me, it's not like me when he was just here before his crucifixion. That's pretty awesome. But the really awesomeness is post-crucifixion because he's already got a resurrected body. He's already overcome sin. He's already overcome death, but he's still living life. That is a powerful transformation that we don't think about when we think about what it means to walk in a new way of life or walk with Christ. Now, now how do you do that? He explains the next couple of verses, how do you do that? And he starts by dealing with this idea of guilt and religion and everything we do about living life. And he says, you got to realize that you are dead to the penalty of sin. He tackles that in the next part of verse 6. He says, we know that our old self, in other words, the part of me and you, was crucified with him in order that sin's dominion over the body might be abolished. So we may no longer be enslaved to sin, since a person who's died, has, or, sorry, a person who has died, is freed from sin's claims. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. So he starts out by saying, "Christ died; He's conquered sin. Because He's in you, you've got the same thing. Your spirit, your soul, the essence of who you are, has been freed from the penalty of sin." Now, you still got to deal with the body. We're going to deal with that in just a minute, but he's tackling the, the soul part first. He continues and he says, because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is not going to die again, death no longer rules over him. For in light of the fact that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But in light of the fact that he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So this means that while my soul is free now from death, my soul's free from the penalty of sin, I no longer have to do religion to get blessed in heaven. I no longer have to jump through certain hoops and go to church and do this and do that so that I can high-five God when I get to heaven. It says I've got to be alive to God in Christ Jesus. It means my reason for doing everything that I do just changed. It changed because religion says I'm doing all this stuff so I can get a high five from God. The change is I'm free from all that. I don't need to do a bunch of stuff. Christ already did it for me, so I'm going to live my life. But how am I going to live my life? For me or for somebody else? And he said it's going to be for somebody else. It's going to be for Christ. And the way we do that is this concept of living under grace. And he's going to drive down deeper on this, so let me introduce it. He says at the end of chapter or sorry, the middle of chapter 6, verses 12 and 14. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. Don't offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness, but, to as the, but, the, ah, but as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and the parts of yourselves to God as weapons of righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under law but under grace. This is not saying that sin doesn't have a part of your DNA. He's getting there in all of chapter 7. Here he's tackling a question of what rules over you. Who is your master? The other side of that coin is whose slave are you? This is identifying as a matter of physical and spiritual truth that sin is no longer your master. 
the point at this part of the lesson, if we stop right here, is if you don't have Jesus Christ infused into your soul, sin rules over you and there's nothing you can do about it. You might pretend to be good, but at your core, you are not good. You may pretend to be uh, altruistic, at your core, you're not, because you've got a ruler, you've got sin that is going to predominate your thoughts, your actions, and everything you do. So this says, I got a new master. I still have to deal with the vestiges of my DNA that I'm going to get to in just a minute, but that's no longer my boss. That's no longer my master. I'm no longer a slave to it where I have to do everything it pulls me to do. It's recognizing this mindset that I am no longer a slave to that. I've got a power, an ability to overcome. The question is, what do I do to overcome that? So his corollary here is the next point I'm outlining, and that is, whose slave are you? If there is a different master, let's talk about this issue of slavery. Now, immediately we, in our minds, culturally start to think about the American experience of slavery or slavery that might still exist in certain parts of the world, and we start to think, you know, kind of get self-righteous and say, well, we've moved beyond that. I, we're, not, we're not, you know, in that antiquity type of slavery. Today, in 2019, every single person alive, by and large, has some type of issue with slavery. Some people are slaves to their jobs. Some people are slaves to possessions. Some people are slaves to the accumulation of wealth. Some people are slaves to ambition in a negative sense. Some people are slaves to their children. Some people are slaves to all kinds of different things like food or drink. So don't think of it just in a historical antiquity American slavery. Think about in 2019, we still, many people suffer with a slavery to something. Paul says it's a different deal if you're a Christian. He says in the middle of chapter 6, should we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? Absolutely not. Don't you know that you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one you obey. You are either a slave of sin leading to death or a slave of obedience leading to righteousness. He then continues and he says, and having been liberated from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. So this is saying when you became a Christian, you got a new master and you became a different type of slave. For just as you offer the parts of yourself as slaves to moral impurity and to greater and greater lawlessness, so now offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. For when you are slaves of sin, you are free from allegiance to righteousness. But now, since you've been liberated from sin and become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification, and the end is eternal life. I highlighted allegiance and your fruit because if you think of yourself as a slave and you put it in the context of traditional slavery, how much freedom do slaves have? Zero. That's the whole point of slavery is you don't have freedom. And so the balance of Christianity, what Paul's trying to describe, is how you have this concept of freedom in Christ remember his context. His context is sin. And in the context of sin, he's not talking about your freedom to do whatever you want. He's talking about your freedom from sin. He's saying you got a new master, and that new master has already conquered sin. He doesn't sin. He lived a sinless life. Post-resurrection, there's no sin. He's the creator of the universe, the ruler of the universe, and we've got an allegiance to that righteousness. Okay, so it's seeing ourselves identification as being wrapped up by him. It's seeing a second part of identification as a slave to his righteousness, meaning I don't have the freedom to do whatever I want. And that's where the rubber meets the road in 21st century modern culture, Western culture. People say, I've got the right to do anything I want to. I got the right to eat whatever I want, drink whatever I want, party as much as I want, have sex with whoever I want, read and watch whatever I want, do anything I want. We feel free because that's the American way of life. We're all into freedom. Paul's saying, uh-uh. 
you are slaves to righteousness, meaning you do not have the freedom to do anything you want because you are uh, a free person and have, have conscious thought. So at that point, you're starting to really scratch your head and say, wait a minute. This may sound fine biblically, but in my life, I struggle. I struggle with fill in the blank, and all of us have a fill in the blank struggle. It's been a lifelong struggle. You all know what yours is, and so Paul's going to talk about how you do this. And the way he deals with this psychologically is fascinating to me because he deals with it by starting to deal with your self-image. And I'll give you a little bit of a preview. If your preview is, I can overcome anything because I got a really good self-image, you're doomed to failure. If your attitude is, I can't overcome anything, then God's got you right where he wants you. He explains in chapter 7 this concept of handling your self-image. Now, in my experience, this runs two ends of the spectrum. On the screen, I've got one end of the spectrum, which is your self-image is really, really good. Your self-image is, I can do anything because I'm smart, I'm wealthy, I'm experienced, I'm old. You know, fill in the blank, we have a lot of self-confidence. At the other end of the spectrum, there are some people in our class today that have a horrible self-image. And you think, I cannot do anything. I may mess up everything I touch. I get through life and it's a miracle that anything survives. It's just a total mess up. Paul's dealing with both of those extremes. And he starts with the concept of no matter what you do with those extremes, what do you do with the rules of conduct? Right? I could call it the law, but I'll just call it rules for societal conduct. What do you do about the rules about language? What do you do about the rules about personal conduct that might be offensive to somebody else? Okay, speaking right, doing right, speaking wrong, doing wrong. Paul tackles that in this autobiographical chapter in chapter 7 where he's talking about himself. He starts by talking about people in general. He says, therefore, my brothers, you were put to death in relation to the law. And when he says law, he means standards for how you conduct yourself in society. He says, that's dead. Stop trying to keep up with it. He says, through the crucified body of the Messiah, so that you may belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we may bear fruit for God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions operated through the law in every part of us and bore fruit for death. But now we've been released from the law, released from these standards, since we've died to what, was, what held us so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the letter of the law. So he says here for dealing with the rules of conduct, that those rules of conduct are dead. You no longer have to keep the Levitical diet code. You no longer have to keep all these different things that are in Leviticus and Deuteronomy about all the things the Jewish people had to do under the law and any other cultural standard about language. He says you're free from that in terms of a standard that held you in bondage. Because if you have that standard, just like the flagship hotel, you just want to violate it. He says, you're free to that, and I highlighted in the middle, bear fruit for God, and then serve in the new way of the Spirit. So this idea of I'm dead to this standard of care, but instead I'm going to serve God, which means I'm going to live the way he wants me to live. Okay, So I am still governing my tongue because that's the way God wants me to live because the Psalms talk about how, you know, from the mouth of, uh, of, of the, the, the good man or the good woman, uh, the heart of God can be seen. We can see how you can have uh, things serving God but not following a bunch of laws that says you can't say these words and you can't say these words. So I can have a standard of conduct that from the outside looks the same, but because I've got a different master, it's not the standard, it's who God is, the reason why I'm doing it's different and what I'm doing is sometimes different. So if going to church is a religious standard, check the box, get into heaven, that's been obliviated 
But over here, if I have a heart for God, I want to be with God, I want to worship God, I want to be with God's people worshiping Him, I'm going to church for a totally different reason. It has nothing to do on checking the box to get into heaven. It has to do on serving Him, having a, a, a heart that wants to bear fruit for Him, that wants to be close to Him. And so I'm doing similar things, but it's for a totally different reason. Paul then gets real deep real quick. And he says, despite this change in my spiritual DNA, despite this heart, despite a different master, I'm still in the flesh. And this is where it gets real fascinating real quick. He says in 714, I am made out of flesh, sold into sin's power. For I do not understand what I'm doing, because I do not practice what I want to do. I do what I hate. So now I'm no longer the one doing it, but it's sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me, sin in his body, that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, that's his heart, his soul, but there's no ability to do it, he's describing there, in his body. He continues, for I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil I don't want to do. Now, if I do what I don't want, I'm no longer the one doing it. It's the sin that lives in me. So I discover this principle. When I want to do what is good, evil is with me. For in my inner self, I joyfully agree with God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. That is one of the most profound passages of Scripture that define human genetics 20 centuries before we understood human genetics. This is a profound concept that has tremendous implications. I could do multiple lessons on this. I just got to hit it in passing and then dive on it deeper later. But what Paul is saying in this biographical sketch of this man of incredible closeness to God through Jesus Christ, this man who has sacrificed more than we'll ever sacrifice, the guy that's writing two-thirds of our New Testament, the guy that's evangelizing the world through his three missionary journeys, he basically says, I am evil in my core. He's describing his DNA. And until literally five years ago, we in our modern culture didn't understand this. Paul taught this two millennium ago in evangelical Christianity for so many years, for so many centuries, we've taught sin as purely a matter of choice. There is an aspect of choice, but we now know through scientific research in genetics that there is a tremendous genetic modifier behind so much of what we do. If any of you go to the drugstore and buy a little DNA testing packet from 23andMe or Ancestry.com or one of those things, for $29.95, they'll tell you all about your genetics. And I spent a little bit more than $29.95 because it's really fascinating. And then I read just books and books and books on it and discovered a bunch of stuff. I discovered that for me and you, our genetic makeup does not create an automatic predisposition, but it creates a magnetic pull. For example, they know from testing your spit or any other part of your DNA, they can look at your genetic makeup and figure out, for example, whether you have a magnetic pull towards jazz or rock and roll. They can tell from your genetic makeup whether you have a magnetic pull to vegetables or fruit. They can tell from your genetic makeup whether you have a magnetic pull to the water or to mountains. They can tell from your genetic makeup whether you've got a pull to the color yellow or to the color dark blue. All kinds of stuff. Now, in my life, I've known this for decades prior to genetic testing. I knew from my own life I had no magnetic pull to alcohol. Hated the taste of it, had no desire for it. Sure, I could have a glass of wine, meant absolutely nothing to me. I've known a whole bunch of people, particularly a whole bunch of lawyers, that's not true. There's a genetic pull they cannot get away from absent extraordinary measures. I know, for example, I don't have a genetic pull towards opioids. 
if I've got an illness, if I have surgery, if I'm really, really sick in the hospital and they give me a Vicodin, it's great, it solves the pain. I don't have a desire and a magnetic pull towards opioids. It's just the way I am. What I can confess to you is I've got a magnetic pull to sugary foods. <laughs> I could eat donuts for breakfast every single day of my life. I could relish a butter cake from Tree Beards every lunch. I could relish a homemade brownie or chocolate meringue pie. And then for dessert before I go to bed, a plate full of warm chocolate chip cookies and a cold glass of milk. And I could eat that and love it every single day of my life. And because I got a really fast metabolism, I would not get fat. Now, I'd be dead of cardiac arrest in 18 months because I got bad heart genes, but that's my genetic pull. I don't have a pull towards a whole bunch of stuff in life, but I got a massive pull towards sugary foods. So as you think about sin, there's aspects of choice in there. Do not misunderstand me. I'm not saying there's not an aspect of what you choose. But the magnetic pull that Paul is talking about that he cannot overcome is genetic. Now, that has a host of implications I'll touch on briefly. One of the implications of that is that as evangelical Christians, we very quickly get self-righteous on the issue of sin. And we prioritize sin, and there's some sin we don't want to deal with them, we don't want them in our church, we don't want anything to do with them, and we just put sin out. If you view sin with a significant genetic magnetic pull, it ought to change your perspective on that radically because it's not 100% choice as the evangelical church has taught for centuries mistakenly. Second, if you view it as a magnetic pull, it not only changes the way you think about yourself and sin in your life, it also ought to change the way you think about other people and the magnetic pull that's in their life that's pulling them to make certain choices that they make. It transcends every aspect of self-identity and your view of other people both in sin and outside of sin. And Paul's point says, as long as I got that sin nature, I got a DNA that is hardwired towards a magnetic pull. It is pulling me towards sin. I know in my heart I've been enveloped in Jesus Christ. I'm engrafted in Jesus Christ. I am free from the penalty of sin. And just like Paul says, what I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, I'm doing. He's saying I got a genetic predisposition I can't get out of. Paul then says, I'm going to do this, I'm going to deal with this in a couple of ways. Number one, what I said a minute ago, I highlight again, I'm backing up a couple of verses. He says, I'm serving in the new way of the Spirit, which means I'm not giving up. I'm not going to quit and just live a life of sin saying, well, that's the way God made me, so until God takes me out of this body, I'm just going to be a victim of my DNA and sin whichever way I'm being magnetically pulled. That is not the option because I'm serving in a new way of the Spirit. So that says I'm never giving up. I'm going to fight my DNA. Point number two is there's going to be failure. Paul says in verse 24 of chapter 7, what a wretched man I am. Now consider where this guy started. When I first taught you the book of Galatians, he starts Galatians by saying I'm the greatest Jew that ever lived right? Can't criticize if you're a Jew. He's got a PhD in Judaism. By the time he's writing Romans, the end of the third missionary journey, he says, what a wretched man I am. And I'll fast forward a little bit when he writes the prison epistles at the end of his life. He's even lower than this. So he starts up here. Right now he's in the middle. He's a wretched dude by the prison epistles, he's way down here. I'll tie that together in a couple of months. But he says, I'm wretched. Who's going to rescue me from this dying body? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself am a slave to the law of God, but with my flesh to the law of sin. That's basically saying, I know one thing in my mind. I know another thing in my body. And I've got to reconcile what he just described a couple of verses earlier as war war. We've not lived in war. What happened in Iraq and Afghanistan doesn't count, right? The vast majority of us don't remember World War II. 
None of us remember World War I. I consider myself a student of World War II. I love to study it. I've got hundreds of books in my library. It's a different culture than anything we can wrap our brain around when you live in a state of war. Paul is calling us back to a mindset of living in a state of war in order to conquer this thing of what you call living in faith and grace. He then explains in chapter 8 what some people consider the greatest chapter in the entire Bible, what I called walking in wretchedness. Okay? That's my label because in Paul's writings, there's no chapter 7 and chapter 8. He transitions straight from this, what we have as 7 and 8 together because chapter 8 starts therefore. In other words, because of my wretchedness, because of my DNA that is magnetically pulling me towards a sin that I cannot physically pull my way out of, how the heck do I live my life? That's why chapter 8 is the greatest chapter in the entire Bible, in my personal opinion, and why most pastors say you're crazy to try to teach it in one lesson, much less 15 minutes. I'm going to do it. Paul says in chapter 8, where most of us would end, Paul starts. Because in our wretchedness, Paul says there is no condemnation. Take a deep, deep breath. In other words, despite your wretchedness, you ain't going to hell. Verse 1, therefore, no condemnation now exists for those in Jesus Christ because the Spirit's law of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. That means you are physically going to lose the war. But spiritually, you have already won the war. So you say, okay, great, that makes me feel good for this hypothetical future that I'm not yet in. What about today? What about Monday? What about Tuesday, Wednesday, and the rest of this week and the rest of this month? How the heck do I live? He starts by focusing on how you fight this war and how you deal with this wretchedness by focusing on what are your interests? What are you going to focus on to help give you strength to deal with your messed up DNA that's magnetically pulling you to something that you know is sin? He says in verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh think about the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit he says, about the things of spirit. I inserted the word think because he's paralleling the prior sentence. You think about the things of the spirit if you're trying to live according to the spirit. For the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. For the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit itself to God's law, for it is unable to do so. He says, you think about the things of the spirit. Now, if this was a discussion class or this was small group at someone's home, we could sit down and talk about what does it mean to think about the things of the Spirit. I'll fast forward for you. This is where it gets beneficial to spend time daily reading your Bible. If you read it, hopefully you're thinking about it. It's why you pray to focus on how He wants our heart and mind to be. We give up our needs to Him, our cares for Him, our concerns for Him, and we ask for help in this war we're fighting against our bad DNA. And it's why we surround ourselves with Christians, why we marry Christians, why we want Christian friends, Christian colleagues at work, because when the things they're saying, the things we're reading, the things we're praying, the things we're watching on TV, the books we're reading, have a central theme of the things of God or the things of the Spirit, you're getting less magnetic pull to that which your DNA is magnetically attracted to. So he's saying if you're magnetically attracted to it, you don't put yourself in that environment. For someone who's in AA, you don't surround your home with alcohol. You get it out of your home so that you're thinking about something other than alcohol. Now, he then goes into the next point, and he says the power of making the right choice. It's chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Since the Spirit of God lives in you. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So you've got a dead body that's magnetically attracted to this, but your spirit's alive. It says in verse 11, And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then He who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through His Spirit that lives in you. I described on your outline the power of making the right choice. If, hypothetically, 
I've got a magnetic draw to alcohol. What is the power of making the right choice? It is not willpower. It's not a matter of saying I can do it because I'm sick of being drunk or I'm sick of DUIs or I'm sick of whatever it is. In the concept of AA, they've got this figured out at this level in a couple of multiple ways. Number one, it starts with identifier. If you go to an AA meeting, they stand up and say, my name is John and I'm an alcoholic. They may not have had a drink in 30 years, but they still identify I'm an alcoholic. So in whatever your sin magnet is, you're always recognizing that. Whether it's alcohol, opioids, porn, uh, food, whatever it is, you're identifying what it is. I am this and I am always gonna be that as long as I got a body. Number two, within the AA concept, they have support, and that's why you go to meetings. You got a mentor and mentee, in other words, you got a, a, a discipleship type of situation with a mentor. You've got a situation with people around you that encourage you, that applaud you, and you've got a week into it, and a month into it, and a year into it, and 10 years into it, and you got all kinds of encouragement. And then within the AA concept, they recognize what they call in kind of a, in, a, in a secular sense, the higher power. In our world, we read Romans and we say, yeah, the higher power is God, it's Jesus Christ. It says that's the power to overcome, but it's not a matter of willpower. The power of choice has got to be more than willpower because the way it just describes this up on the screens is it's all about the power of Jesus Christ. It's not about the power of you. So it describes his power to overcome, his power of life over death. It's not your power to will yourself into not following that magnetic pull into sin. So it says if you do that, he's got the power to pull your body, your mortal bodies, to life through his spirit that lives inside of you. So practically, how do you do that? Practically, how you do that is being led by God being led in who you associate with, what you do, and how you do it. He says in verse 13, But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. All those led by God's Spirit are God's Son. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received a spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So his concept here is I highlighted of being led by God's Spirit is basically one of kind of backing up a little bit and reminding that concept of slavery. Who's my master? Is my master sin, this magnet that's pulling me, or do I have a new master? If my new master is opposite of what my magnetic pull towards sin is, then it's a matter of letting my master fight the other master that's trying to claim me. The problem is we want to live under an old master. Great illustration in American history. Abraham Lincoln, one of my all-time favorite presidents, declared in the fall of 1962, that, sorry, 1862, sorry, 1862, that the slaves were free. They still had to fight a civil war because there was a whole bunch of people that didn't want to agree with that. It wasn't until December of 1865 when Lincoln's dead the Confederacy was in a state of smoldering ruin that the 13th Amendment was passed and every state ratified it and slavery was as a matter of constitution, constitution uh, prohibited. But do you realize that a decade later, in 1875, more than 80% of those south of the Mason-Dixon line still lived in the same place they lived 10 years earlier doing the exact same job for the exact same person. They would not walk out of slavery. Now they had different names for it, whether it was sharecropper, whether it was a house servant, or whether it was something that you know paid them a little bit or let them keep some of the crops. That slightly changed. But the environment in which they lived never changed because they were so accustomed to the lifestyle they were in they didn't know what else to do. And it took decades and centuries for people in, in a situation of slavery, despite the end of slavery, to break out of that. It took different opportunities, it took different efforts, it took different societal changes, 
But the point is, if left in our rut, we will stay in our rut until someone pulls us out of our rut or kicks us through another door. So the point here of being led by God in my personal life is not, God, you open the door and let me walk through it. My prayer is, God, pull me through that door and pull me away from this thing that's magnetically pulling itself to me. So whatever it is being led by God is also being pulled by God out of the rut that you just want to live in and stay in, just like a slave in the end of the 19th century. And one of the ways you know to do that is by hearing his guidance. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we're God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, seeing that we suffer with him, so we may also be glorified with him. This is a great passage because it says that the Spirit is always speaking. The Holy Spirit that indwells inside of you is speaking all the time, every day. Most of us, in reaction to that, say, well, I don't hear him. And you're right, because we live in a really, really noisy world. Most of us do not take time to separate from the TV, separate from the radio, separate from our jobs, separate from our families, go into a place of seclusion that might be your closet, your office, your car, your place in the country, whatever it is, and just hear the Holy Spirit. Scripture teaches he's speaking all the time. We just don't hear him. So the question of being pulled by God, being led by God everywhere, has as its fundamental basis being able to hear the Holy Spirit saying, here's what I want you to read. Here's what I want you to work on. Here's what I want you to, here's what I want you to hang out with. Here's what I want you to try to avoid. Don't make this phone call. Don't go there. Don't send that email. Don't do that. You got to hear the Holy Spirit giving you guidance. It's like trying to say that I could be a phenomenal Olympic athlete but I'm going to put earplugs in my ear every time the coach comes near. You'd look at him and say, you're the biggest idiot that ever set foot on the field. If the coach is showing up and you're putting earplugs in your ears, and yet you pretend you're an Olympic athlete. It's the same thing with the Holy Spirit. If you want advice from the coach, you got to take the earplugs out of your ears so you can hear what the coach is trying to tell you to say. But then, despite all of that, it is the hardest thing any of us are ever, ever, ever going to do. I described on your outline as groaning with the fallen creation. Verse 18, for I consider the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed for us. For the creation eagerly awaits the anticipation for God's sons to be, be revealed. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. And not only that, but we ourselves, who have the Spirit inside of us as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for adoption as the redemption of our bodies. The Spirit also joins to help in our weakness, because we don't know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groaning. He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That means for as long as you've got a body, as long as you're here alive, you're going to groan with the tension, the war of your magnetic sin pull with your mind and your heart that knows what to do, that loves the Lord, that loves Jesus Christ and wants to be like him. And this groaning is basically saying, I can't do it. I'm getting pulled in different directions. This is saying as you don't even know what to pray, just ask the Holy Spirit to pray. This prayer is the simplest prayer in the Christian life because the prayer of Romans 8, uh, 26 is one word. Help! That's the prayer of Romans 8, 26. That's the prayer that doesn't have words. And the prayer of help says in 27, 28, the Holy Spirit fills in the blanks and tells God the Father the help you need. Because you don't know the help you need to stop that magnetic pull to sin. Only the Holy Spirit knows, only God knows what you need to help you take the next step to get past it for today. 
And then he continues by saying that despite all of that groaning, despite the cries for help, despite a magnetic pull genetically toward a particular type of sin or multiple sins, it says we still have a promise that's the greatest promise in the entire Bible. It's also coincidentally the most misapplied verse in the entire Bible. Romans 8, 28. For you know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. Last week, after the shooting in El Paso in Dayton, Ohio, I heard some idiot on TV attempt to quote this verse and say, all things work together for good. And I screamed at my TV, finish the rest of the verse. Because whether it's 9-11, whether it's the death of a baby or grandbaby, whether it's a shooting, whether it's a rape, wherever it's something bad, the answer is not all things work together for good. That's a misreading of the verse because you're not quoting the whole verse. In the original Greek, it's got a different word order, and it starts with the word order that I've put in gold. And in Greek, one of the ways you emphasize words is you put primacy, you put the word first. It might be a phrase, it might be a noun, it might be a verb, but if it's first in the sentence, in the Greek language, that means primacy. That's what's most important in this sentence. And in Greek, this starts, for those who love God, we know that all things work together for the good for those who are called according to his purpose. And it's those two things that are omitted. For those who love God, it's basically saying when you're God's child, you're an heir, your salvation is assured. That promise is it's all going to work out eventually according to God's will. Because the ending is for those who are called according to his purpose, that's God's will for your life on this earth, his will, or his will for your life on this earth, his will for you with him in eternity. When he says good, all things work together for the good. If you studied every time Paul uses that word, It is never used for happiness, for wealth, for health, for anything else that we would put a label of good on in our life today. When Paul uses the word good, it's in a moral sense or a spiritual sense. Every time he writes, every time he uses the word good, it's a moral good or a spiritual good. It's never an earthly, tangible good. And so with that background, his understanding is very, very critical for those who love God, for those who are called into his purpose. Then, because you are his child, he's not going to let a moral bad or a spiritual bad take you down. And it says no matter how bad life is going to be, he's going to take care of you. Now, I'll end on this point, and the ending on this point is chosen by an omnipotent God because at this point, somebody's likely to say, well, Chris... You just don't really understand how bad this magnetic pull to sin was when I was in college or when I was in my 20s or 30s or last year or last month or whatever it is. Somebody comes up with some sin in their mind or some repeated sin that's so bad they feel disqualified for being God's heir. He ends with this point, and this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, because it says, for those he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. Now, I'm going to do a whole lesson on this whole concept of predestination later on when we get to more verses on this. The point I want to teach today in the concept of how you live your life is when he called you to be a Christian, he called you to be gifted, And he called you to eternity. And he called you knowing with omniscience what your sins, past, present, and future, already were. He called you already knowing what your worst sins to be already were. And he called you anyway. It means you're not disqualified. It means you're simply empowered by his love to fight according to his will the way he wants you to fight the war against your own body. 
it ought to be the most transformative concept any human being in Christianity ever has. And that's why people call Romans 8 one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. I will start next week with the application of where I was going to end this lesson, but we're out of time. So I will start there next week as we transition into what's next. But I'll simply leave you with the thought that this idea of a sin nature that is genetic and not 100% a matter of choice hopefully makes you feel better in your wretchedness. Wretchedness, that's the right word. Hopefully makes you feel better about other people or think differently about other people. And hopefully makes you understand better the mind of Paul and why this explanation of how you live a life for grace is a matter of a war mentality, not a matter of check the box and do this good thing or check the box and avoid that bad thing. It's a war mentality to get through it all. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to quickly cover these amazing passages. And we just thank you for this scripture. We thank you for the encouragement. We thank you for the insight into our psychology and into our DNA. Even before humanity realized there was such a thing as DNA. It shows that you are God. It shows that you love us. It shows a profoundness that we can't even wrap our brain around. And we just say thank you, God, for loving us, for calling us, for bringing us here for this class, for our friends, for the encouragement this provides. We just pray for your safety until we're back here together next week. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. See you all next week. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study. Online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com. All rights reserved.